My name is Wade. I'm a, one of the pastors here, and I'm honored to bring the word to us. If you were here last Sunday, you know that I preached, uh, but that wasn't part of the original plan. I found out that uh, I'd be preaching um, just a little while before service began, so I had about an hour to, pre- to prepare the message and um, the message was a mess. It was objectively bad. Um, and I'm, I'm okay saying that, um, but I'm just letting you know, this is, it was objectively bad. I'm not making any excuses for it. Um, I, and and after I, immediately after I sat down, I, I thought, thought of all the things I could have said and I should have said. I thought about all the ways I could have organized it. And I, I thought about the poor delivery and the half-baked thoughts um, the lack of flow. I'm like, I, I looked back on it and I was like, I didn't even finish the thought that I spoke. And um, as as the day went on, I, I felt increasingly bad about it. And I, I felt especially bad. And I, I honestly mean this. I sometimes feel bad that you guys have to sit through what I say. So on your behalf, I felt bad. And I told Christine later on, I was just thinking about it. I was like, I felt so, I felt so humbled and that I shouldn't even deserve to be speaking and uh, to the church. And, and for a couple of days afterward, I, I continue to feel really bad about it. So um, Tracy, she usually posts our, the sermons online on Sunday afternoons. And I was going to tell her, Tracy, don't post it online because I don't want it online. <laughs> um, fun fact, uh, did you, there have been some sermons that I've preached in the past, I was so bad. I re-recorded it Monday morning and I posted it online. So, if you guys, that that's an Easter egg for you. Um, <laughs> if you look 2012, 2013, there are several of those on our website. Um, but I, I decided this time I'm going to let it be. I'm going to fight against the instinct to save myself from of, of protecting myself from embarrassments, because I thought that. This is one thing that I can contribute to the culture of this church. Um, because, you know, there's, there are things that we can say from the pulpit, and that there are things we can communicate by the way we do church. Um, what I speak from the pulpit is important, but so is what I communicate. And what I wanted to communicate by allowing the sermon to go online was that there's something more important than preaching a good sermon I want us to know that following the Spirit's leading doesn't always look pretty. Sometimes He gives us something to do, and we just we just do it. If the Holy Spirit tells you to do something, you just do it. Don't try to talk yourself out of it. Don't consider how foolish it might make you look. And I thought about this, and I thought, how perfect. Maybe this is what Paul meant when he said, when he says that Christ sent him to preach not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. And maybe this is what Paul meant when he, when he wrote that none might boast in the presence of God. And I look back on last Sunday and I thought, I have absolutely nothing to boast about. I know it didn't make me look good, but I don't really care about it all that much. But what I do care about is the type of church that we become We become who God wants us to be when we have a culture of dependence on the Holy Spirit. And by believing that the message of the cross is the primary message that we're given to preach and to do. So that's been the goal of this summer. We've been, in June, we started the, 
the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. And what I wanted for us, what I believe God has wanted for us over these past few weeks, is for us to really consider what it means to listen to God's Word and to do church as He has called us to do it. And I hope that we've been taking seriously God's Word and that our, our, our eyes are always turned to His Word when we're thinking about what our church should look like and what we should do, what we're supposed to do. So that's a long introduction to say, here is the, le- the message le- lived out, which is uh, the cross has to have the final word, not the eloquence of the preacher. I am not that great a preacher. I totally own that. I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. But the cross has to be preached. So with the next few minutes that we have, here's the plan. I'm going to go over some of the content that I attempted to go over last week. And then I'll preach on the last few verses of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. So this is going to be the second to last sermon in the series. So let's listen to it. Let's absorb and, and receive what is being spoken to us. So if you look in your bulletin, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the Word of God. So my objective this morning is for us to understand why we need the Spirit of God to work in this church and for us to position ourselves to, de- to be dependent on the work of the Spirit for everything that we do here. So to do that, I have three points, which are not in your bulletin, but here they are. The first point, the problem that we have in doing ministry. Number two, the power to do ministry. And number three, what it means to have the mind of Christ. So the problem in doing ministry, the power God gives us to do ministry, and finally, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ, as Paul writes in verse 16. So, the first point, the problem that we have in doing doing ministry. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to bring good news. And there's a huge barrier to the work that we're called to. We're called to preach the gospel with the intent of people being saved from their sins so that they can follow Jesus And to preach a sermon, to do the work of a church, is really, it might be difficult sometimes, um, but it's something that we can do. It's really, when I come up here, it's to speak words. On one level, it's really not that difficult. But for there to be meaningful change in this church, in order for there to be meaningful change in the lives of those who hear the word, there's something that we can't do. And this is the big problem that we have in doing ministry. We're called to do something that we can't do. We don't want people simply to know about Jesus. We want people to love Jesus. And this is something that it takes more than the tools that we have. 
So an illustration here might help. Um, I love steak. I love to eat it. I love to... I follow pages on Instagram that are dedicated to steak. That's how much I enjoy looking at and eating steak. And uh, a while back, I made one for dinner. This is ribeye, medium rare. First, uh, this is a freebie. I'm going to give this to you. My secrets, which I found on the internet. Um, First, I'm going to season it with a mixture of kosher salts. And Trader Joe's has a 21-season salute. I mix those together, put it on the steak, and then I put a pat of Kerrygold butter on it. And then I cook it for two hours, 129 degrees, in the sous vide machine, in the sous vide bath. And then I take it out, I sear it on a skillet, 30 seconds each side. I let it sit for five to eight minutes, depending on how I feel that day. And then it's ready to be cut into. I cut into the steak. It's a perfect reddish pink. Juices are leaking out. It's moist. It's tender. It's flavorful. It has just the amount, right amount of bites. And I created a, in my mind, a perfect steak a few weeks ago. So I'm enjoying the steak, and I see my son. He's eating something that is not the steak that I'm enjoying. And I think to myself, all right, this boy, he needs to enjoy what I'm enjoying because I don't want him to miss out. This is part of growing up. you got to enjoy what your father enjoys. So I, I, I cut a piece out, and I offer to him. And in typical Zachary fashion, he goes, no. <laughs> so I, told, I tell him, Zachary, this is good. You're going to enjoy it. I made it so it's tender, so when you bite into it, it's just going to, you're going to enjoy it. And he's, he goes, mm, no, I don't want to eat it. And, and I was sad because I really wanted him to experience the pleasure of eating this ribeye steak. So I, I kept on pushing it on him, and throughout the dinner, I was like, Zachary, eat it. And he's like, no, 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 I don't want to try it. So I gave up, and he never tried this piece of tender, juicy delectable ribeye steak. And as a father, I felt like a failure. Where did I go wrong in this process? How do I get my son to love that which is good? Shall I read him testimonies of people who also enjoy steak? Should I explain to him how the taste buds, there's a sensation in your mouth that you get to enjoy when you eat steak? Should I explain to him that the nutrients in the steak will make him grow stronger? Should I speak loudly and tell him, my steak is better than your dino bites? (laughs) Should I just force a bite into his mouth? I'm not going to do that because he's three years old. He's not going to understand why I want him to try this. He doesn't have the capacity. As logical as my reasons might be, He's not going to understand why he should just take a bite. There has to be something that happens in Zachary that will make him want to take this bite of food. And I can't make him do it. And there's something that's out of my control that's necessary, necessary for him to enjoy it as much as I do. It's not up to me, ultimately. And so it is on a much larger scale in the heart of man The great barrier to the work that we do as a church is that we cannot change the hearts of the people who walk inside this room or the people that we interact with throughout the week. This is the great problem that we have in the church. All that we're called to do, we can't do. 
Look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we might have the smoothest logistics at this church. We can have smart and articulate preachers teach every Sunday to the congregation. We can speak truth. We can say what is factually correct. We can have a dynamic children's ministry and a tight worship band. And we can have really charismatic people on our member role. And we can even quote Tim Keller. (laughs) But nothing meaningful will happen if we're counting on these things to convince and change people. And Paul says there's a reason why. There's a deadness to people. The natural person does not accept the things that are spiritual because he cannot. He does not because he cannot accept the things that are the Spirit of God. And when Paul, when he says here that they're spiritually discerned, he's saying that, that the things that are spiritual, they can't be evaluated, they can't be judged on the proper level with the proper understanding. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, he, he, tells, he tells us that we judge or we discern the things that we hear. They're either foolishness to us or their wisdom to us. The spiritual things will always be foolishness to those who do not understand things on a spiritual level. So Paul, he says, he calls them natural people. Now note, he doesn't say that these are odd people. He doesn't say that they're unintelligent. He doesn't say that they are ill-intentioned. These are not enemies of the church. We don't look down on them. He just says they're natural people. Their default state is to look at things simply as they are. What can be understood with the empirical sense, empirically, what, what can be sensed. This is their default mode. This is what it means to be natural. That we just understand things on a certain level. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the two realms that exist. The first realm is the realm that we see. And the second is what we can only see and experience if our eyes are opened by the Spirit of God. There are two realms. The musician Ben Shive, he says that there are some stories that are truer than the true stories that we know. There are some stories that are truer than the true stories that we know. There's a natural, which is what we all were. And in order for us to get the spiritual To get what is spiritual, something beyond the natural needs to happen. Something supernatural needs to occur. Now, this is good news and bad news. When we look at the impossibility of doing what we're called to do, this is bad news first because it means that the change that we want to see in our friends so badly, it can't come by our efforts. It doesn't matter how many conversations we have. It doesn't matter how compelling the preacher's sermons are. It doesn't matter how many... uh, Interactions we have doesn't matter how welcoming our community is. This is bad news. Just imagine if you came on Sundays and everything that we did, you knew that it would be in vain. How discouraging would that be? This is really bad news. But this is also good news because it means that things are not ultimately up to us. Mark Dever writes this about the work of the church. Remember that churches exist to work for supernatural change. The whole Christian faith is based on the idea that God takes people who are spiritually dead and gives them new life. Whenever we evangelize, we are evangelizing the cemetery. 
There's never been a time or a culture when it was natural to repent of your sins. That culture doesn't exist. It hasn't existed. It will never exist. Christians, churches, and pastors especially must know deep in their bones that we've always been about a work that's supernatural. From that standpoint, recent cultural changes have made our job 0% harder. Now this is good news because it means that our calling as a church is not just difficult, our calling as a church is impossible. If we want to see people be changed by the gospel, if we want them to understand it on more than an intellectual level, then we have no choice but to rely on the Spirit to do what only the Spirit can do. It means we have to make room in our lives for Him. It means we have to develop the discipline of listening to the Spirit in our lives. It means that we have to submit to Him. It means that we have to hold loosely to our plans. We might make plans, but the Lord directs our steps. And if we truly rely on the power of God, if we truly rely on the power of God, then we'll experience the power of the Spirit of God. If we truly rely on the power of the Spirit of God, then we'll experience the power of the Spirit of God. Or to put it negatively, maybe we don't experience the power of the Spirit of God because we're unwilling to put ourselves in a position where God has to move. Have you ever considered this? Maybe the reason we're often bored in church is because we're only experiencing what human effort brings about. Have you ever considered that? Maybe the reason why we're so unenthused about what this church does, maybe the reason why we're bored and we say, I'm not that into it, is because you're only looking at it from a human level. Let's be really honest here. Waking up early on a Sunday morning to get together with people that you're unfamiliar with, who you don't share any common interest with, does that really sound appealing to you? I can think of ten other things that are way more fun on a Sunday morning than coming here. Have you ever thought that? Maybe this is why we're so bored with church. Because we only look at it from a human level. Have you ever felt like God was distant? Maybe God feels distant because we don't want him to be close. Because we know intuitively he'll ask of us something that we're not willing to give up. When God comes close to us, he says, you have to submit to me. We're afraid he'll want more from us than Sunday mornings and 3% of our paychecks. We don't want our lives and our sins interrupted. We don't want to feel conviction. Do you remember what Jesus says about the Spirit's role? One of the main things the Spirit does is he convicts us of our sin. That means the Spirit will dig around in places in our hearts that we thought were just for us alone. The Spirit will move us to repentance. Do you feel distant from God? Have you considered that maybe it's because you're keeping him at arm's, at, at, at arm's length? So what happens if our church really submits to the Spirit? 
What if we really believe that our church goes beyond what we can see with our eyes? What if we believe that we're called to an impossible task and that God has given us a power that goes beyond the impossibilities? What happens if our church really submits to the Spirit? Then, if we do this, then the Spirit will change hearts. This is when the natural man becomes more than natural. This is when the natural man becomes supernatural. Then we'll see something scary and terrifying and also beautiful at Indelible Grace Church. This is what makes our job so difficult because it's impossible. So this is how it happens. This leads us to our second point, the power that God gives us to carry out ministry. So the Spirit reveals to us what is true. Last, last week we, we mentioned the bigness of God. You remember the passage from Romans 11, this passage that invites us to consider just how unimaginably deep and wide God's mind is. This is what it says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This is true of God. And then this is followed up with a question. Romans 11, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Now this sounds like a rhetorical question. Of course we can't know the mind of the Lord. His judgments are inscrutable. His ways are unsearchable. Of course we can't know the mind of the Lord. But Paul says in today's passage that this isn't a rhetorical question. Actually, let me tell you something. Verses 11 and 12, Paul says that as big and as unsearchable as God's thoughts and ways are, we can know them. We can know the thoughts of God. Our passage again, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things that are freely given us by God. This is the response to Paul's question in Romans 11. I hope we think about this and we consider, we realize how remarkable this is. That we, 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 have, the very, we have access to the very thoughts of the creator of the universe. Harry Potter will never know the mind of J.K. Rowling. And Hamlet can never know the thoughts of Shakespeare. But this, this passage is telling us, we very tiny and extremely limited creations can know God Almighty. We can know our Creator. So Paul is telling us in this passage that the Spirit of the Lord, He knows the mind of the Lord. And because we have the Spirit in us, we can know all that he reveals to us because the Spirit has examined the knowledge of God. And because he's in us, he reveals it. Let me tell you what's true about your Creator. We have access to the very mind of God because we have access to the Spirit, and the Spirit reveals to us what is true. The Spirit reveals to us what is true. Here's another illustration that might, that might help us understand what's going on here. So, Imagine yourself, and imagine yourself under extremely stressful 
circumstances. You're under financial strain, not just occasional financial strain, but for years and years, you've been anxious about money. You're always worrying about how the bills are going to get paid. You're not sure uh, how much debt you have because you're afraid of looking at the numbers. You have medical bills and credit card bills and car payments and house payments, and your income is too small And the financial obligations are too big. There seems to be no way out. And you think that you're relegated to poverty for the rest of your life. You think that this is all there is for you. Now imagine there is an extremely successful businessman. Imagine that he died recently. And in his bank account is $50 million. He has $50 million in his bank account. But he has no immediate family, so therefore it sits in the bank account unclaimed. The bank assigns someone to track down his next of kin. And one day you hear a knock on your door. This person tells you, this, tells you the story of this businessman. He tells you about his vast fortune and how he earned it. He tells you about how, how he would spend his money and what his values were. And the next of kin, he says, is the rightful heir of all this money. And after much work, after learning about the businessman's life and his riches, and after doing as much research about his family tree as he could, this person discovered that his next of kin was you. Now the $50 million belongs to you. Now this could not have happened unless there was someone to know the riches of the businessman, unless there was someone to do the work of research and finding the, of, the, of finding the rightful heir, and of tracking down the next of kin, unless there was this person, you would have lived the rest of your life in poverty. But there was someone to reveal to you the vast riches that now belong to you. Now this is a made-up story. But there really is someone who, who reveals to you the vast riches that belong to you. And dare I say, it is way better than any financial payout or riches that could ever come your way. Paul is saying here in this passage, the Spirit of God, he's explored the infinite wisdom of the infinite God. The Spirit knows all the riches in the person of God. He knows his power. He knows his love. He knows his righteous anger. He knows his holiness. He knows his sovereignty, his his immutability. He knows the incomprehensible God, and he makes him comprehensible to us. The Spirit of God reveals God to us. In Romans 8, Paul says that this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are heirs of all that God has for us, and it's a spirit that tells us this is exactly what you have. Now, this is what the spirit has done for some of us, and this is what the Spirit has to do in the lives of our friends and family. If you want them to have the life that we have, it requires the Spirit. William Cooper, he articulates it this way in the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter 
and he will make it plain. The Spirit of God will make it plain to us what we need to know and what our friends need to know. And when he does this, the Spirit not only reveals what is true, but he lets us see it as beautiful. He lets us see that $50 million as this is something that's good, it's something that you should want. The Spirit reveals to us not only what is true, but what is beautiful. He doesn't just inform our minds, he changes our minds. Verse 16, he says this, we have the mind of Christ. And this leads us to our final point. We have the mind of Christ. If you're a Jesus follower, then you have the Spirit of God. This is promised to you by Jesus himself. He says, one of the most amazing things that you will ever have is that you have the Spirit of God working in you, living in you. And to have the Spirit of God is to have the mind of Christ because the Spirit has revealed to us what is true. We now have the ability to see reality as Christ sees it. The mind of Christ understands that the folly of the world is the wisdom of God. It understands that the meaning the, the spirit of the God, the mind of Christ understands the meaning of the message of the cross. The message of the cross is this: that the holy, infinite God created us to live in relationship with Him, but we, we rebelled and we tried to live life apart from Him. And this is like trying to live in a vacuum with no oxygen. What's going to happen if you live in that environment? You're going to die. The natural consequence of living outside the relationship in which we were supposed to live is death. And yet God loved his people so much that he sent his son to live the perfect life that, li- that honored the Father God. And all our sins, all our acts of rebellion and foolish independence they were carried by Jesus. He carried them as his penalty to the cross. Jesus died the death that we deserved, and he rose from the dead to prove that he was who he said he was and to defeat death decisively. Therefore, that means that we can live because the cross of Christ. And because we can now live, we can live the life that God intended for us. This, this God dependent, spirit-empowered life. This is the gospel. This is the message that we preach. I can preach it really well. I can preach it really poorly. But if that's the message, this is what's going to change you. This is what's going to change your friends. This is what's going to change the hearts of anyone that's going to walk in these doors. You might remember from a few weeks ago, we spoke about the ways in which the message of the cross is contrary to the message and the values of this world. That means that we have to let the message of the cross drive everything that we do as a church. And when we do, we put ourselves in a position where we have to rely on God. The cross says, die to yourself. Die to your education. Die to your skills. Die to your relationships. And this is the way in which I'm going to bring about what I've called you to do as a follower of Christ. Do we really rely on the Spirit of God? Eloquent words might move us emotionally. Wise words might change our minds. Hospitable people will make us feel welcome in this place. Charismatic people will make us feel good about ourselves. A religious culture will drive us to do charitable deeds. 
a well-run organization will impress us. Beautiful music will entertain us. A good children's program will relieve us and allow us to pay attention when we gather. A building will give us a sense of community and rootedness. Healthy financial numbers will make us feel safe. And you can do all those things without God. So a question for us. And I want us to really think about this. Why are we here? Do we really believe that the work we do here is supernatural? Because if it's not, I invite you to leave. Do you really believe that people can be broken open? Do you really believe that people can be set free from their sins and addictions? Do you really believe that people will love Jesus more than they love their own families, their own lives? Do you really believe that our friends around us will leave their jobs and even their communities to follow Jesus into difficult places? Do you really believe that we can have joy in the face of intense suffering? Do you really believe that? What God, God has called us to do as a church is impossible. Impossible. So how will we do it? We have on our member rolls 100 plus members. Now what if every single member had the mind of Christ? What if there were 100 people who were on board with what the Spirit of God is doing in this place, can you imagine? Can you imagine if we had a hundred people? Not not only this church would be changed, this whole community would be changed. Can you imagine? So what will we do? For those of us who are trying so hard to carry our ministries on our own. We need to repent of doing what only the Spirit can do. For those of us who are hesitant to step into the ring to serve because we don't want to be uncomfortable or inconvenienced, we need to repent of trying to protect ourselves. For those of us who are bored of what's happening here, we need to repent of not paying attention. For those of us who have been ignoring what the Spirit has been telling us, We need to repent of our deafness. We need to move. For those of us who have grown cold, we need to repent of abandoning our first love. For those of us who have low expectations of what can happen in our own lives or in our families or community groups or ministries or at IGC, for those of us who have low expectations of what can happen, We need to repent of thinking that God is that small. We need to repent of thinking that his spirit is weak. Zechariah 4.6 Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Will you pray with me? God, we 
repent of the ways in which we've played God in our own lives, the ways in which we've played God in our ministry and in this church. You alone are God. There is no other. There is no other. So God, would you take your rightful place in our hearts in this church? May we we see you for who who you are. May we respond accordingly, God. I, I I ask that you would do a supernatural work in this place, in our lives. We want to see more than what we've had. We believe that you can do it. We pray that you will do it. We pray this in the name of Jesus who loved loved us and gave himself for us to make this possible. Amen.